0: Hello and welcome to Sermons from First Press, a weekly podcast from the First Presbyterian Church of Ann Arbor, Michigan.
1: Let us pray. Shine within our hearts, loving Lord, with the true light of your divine knowledge, and open the eyes of our minds that we may comprehend the message of your word. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. This morning's Old Testament reading is from the second book of Samuel, chapter 12, verses 1 through 10, 13 and 14. And the Lord sent Nathan to David. He came to him and said to him, there were two men in a certain city, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds. But the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb, which he had bought. He brought it up, and it grew up with him and with his children. It used to eat of his meager fare, and drink from his cup, and lie in his bosom, and it was like a daughter to him. Now there came a traveler to the rich man, and he was loath to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the wayfarer who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared that for the guest who had come to him. Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man. He said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. He shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. Nathan said to David, You are the man. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel. I anointed you king over Israel, and I rescued you from the hand of Saul. I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your bosom, and gave you the house of Israel and of Judah. And if that had been too little, I would have added as much more. Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword, and have taken his wife to be your wife, and have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house, for you have despised me, and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. Nathan said to David, Now the Lord has put away your sin. You shall not die. Nevertheless, because by this deed you have utterly scorned the Lord, the child that is born to you shall die. This is the word of the Lord.
2: The New Testament reading is from the letter of Paul to the Ephesians, chapter 4, beginning at verse 7. But each of us was given grace according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it is said, when he ascended on high, he made captivity itself a captive. He gave gifts to his people. When it says he ascended, what does it mean but that he who had also descended into the lower parts of the earth? He who descended is the same as he who ascended far above all the heavens so that he might fill all things. The gifts he gave were that some would be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until all of us come to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to maturity, to the measure of the full stature of Christ. As each part is working properly, promotes the body's growth in building itself up in love. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. It's a remarkable thing that the First Presbyterian Church of Ann Arbor devotes a Sunday each year to the university. It's even more remarkable that it issues the invitation to preach to someone from Notre Dame. (laughs) Surely this is what Jesus meant when he commanded us to love our enemies. (laughs) But most remarkable of all is your faith that this church has something to say to the university, to this very secular university, a word of the good news of Jesus Christ. What is that word? We are told that we are living in the midst of a crisis of truth. We hear that social media, the airwaves, traditional media are awash with fake news, alternative facts, truthiness. We see books with titles like Post-Truth, Saving Truth, and The War on Truth on bestseller lists. Two years ago, Oxford Dictionaries anointed the term Post-Truth the word of the year. And just last month, the crisis of truth reached a new high, or maybe a new low, when a public figure declared that truth isn't truth. (laughs) Of course, people have always lied, deceived, fudged, manipulated facts, What makes our situation a crisis is that the hostility seems directed not just at facts we don't like, but at the very idea of truth itself. The conviction that what we say and do is accountable to what's true. If you're part of a university or you live in a university town, you might think the university is a refuge of truth, exempt from the crisis. Don't university administrators keep telling us they stand for the unfettered pursuit of truth? Don't many universities, including the University of Michigan, have the word truth in their mottos? Maybe University Sunday is a day to celebrate the university as an island of truth in a sea of falsehood. But if you follow what's happening in universities, you know they're facing their own crises of truth. In the natural sciences and social sciences, researchers are unable to reproduce the results of many published studies that have passed peer review. Apparently, the problem is not so much outright fraud as a widespread tendency to manipulate data and statistical models. As for the humanities, well, Rudy Giuliani may have coined the phrase, truth isn't truth, but it could be a slogan for how professors and graduate students have talked about the truth since the 1990s. Truth isn't truth, it's just how people gain power by successfully naming their own ideas as true and other people's ideas as false. And if you're a student, you might know about the lawsuit against the University of Michigan brought by people who claim the right to say whatever they want against those who want to protect vulnerable people from harmful speech. So there's hostility and indifference to truth everywhere. But what if it's at least partly because we're not speaking the truth in love? In Ephesians 4.15, Paul connects speaking the truth in love with growing into Christ, and through Christ into unity with one another. This verse comes right after he has warned the Ephesians not to be blown around by false doctrines. There's no indifference to truth here. Truth matters. We don't dispense with it for the sake of love. But truth must be spoken in love. Speaking the truth truly must be a deed we do lovingly. What does it mean to speak the truth in love? John Calvin got to the heart of it. Paul's point in this verse, he said, is to join a diligence for truth with a care for mutual fellowship. A diligence for truth with a care for mutual fellowship. Maybe this is the good news the church has to proclaim to the university. Consider the lawsuit against the university. What if the plaintiffs could see that universities stand for free speech not so people can say whatever they want, but because they have a diligence for truth? What if the university could see that the point of restrictions on speech isn't to protect people from speech that makes them uncomfortable, but to make possible the mutual fellowship that enables every one of its members, including the most vulnerable ones, to join together in the pursuit of truth. But we know it's not easy to speak the truth in love. Truth can be hard. We talk about the cold truth, facing up to the truth. Truth can hurt. We routinely suppress truth to avoid hurting other people's feelings. Paul doesn't tell us it will be easy to join diligence for truth with care for mutual fellowship. But he gives us some hints. Let's consider three of them. The first hint is that truth isn't just what someone says. It's also the person who says it. In John's Gospel, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Truth is, first of all, a person. The word Paul uses for speaking the truth in Ephesians 4.15 also means being the truth. What we say comes from who we are. If we're going to speak the truth in love, the truth has to be something we are, not just something we say. Nothing is harder for a doctor than telling her patient the truth about his terminal cancer or dementia. But people who study study doctor-patient interactions say that how the doctor is present with her patient when she speaks the truth of his condition matters as much or more than what she says. The truth isn't just what she says, it's also who she is. And who she is is not just a professional, but also a fellow sufferer who is present with us in our suffering, just as God is present with us in our suffering. Some healthcare experts say that within 10 years we'll all be diagnosing ourselves online, by comparing our individual biological information with big data sets, 23andMe. If that happens, the greater accuracy of diagnosis will be a great gain in diligence for the truth. But without the presence of a doctor who accompanies us in our frailty, it will be a great loss in care for mutual fellowship. Truth is the person, not just the words. To speak the truth in love, we have to reach the person. We're Presbyterians. We're good at speaking truth to power. But too often, we think it's enough to confront power with truth. We condemn wrongdoing, but we don't reach the person who does the wrong. In our Old Testament reading, the prophet Nathan speaks the truth to King David. David thinks he's entitled to Bathsheba. After all, he's king. He thinks he can dispose of her husband's life. After all, he's king. Nathan speaks the truth to King David. He must confront David with the truth about his power. But he also knows that David can resist the truth. After all, he's king. So rather than tell David what he's done wrong, he tells a story that forces David to see himself as the wrongdoer. Truth is a person. David is forced to speak the truth about his own power, that he's not an entitled king, but a pitiless tyrant. And knowing who he is, and not only what he's done, is the first step of his repentance. Truth is a person. The second hint is that to speak the truth in love is to speak with humility. It's to know we don't own the truth. In John's gospel, the same Jesus who says, I am the truth, also says that he doesn't speak on his own, but he speaks what he hears from his father. Jesus is the truth, precisely because he treats the truth as God's gift to him and not his own possession. What does it mean to to own the truth? Well, sometimes we're so convinced We know the truth that we betray a deeper truth. Job's friends knew the truth about suffering. Everything they said to Job was correct, according to the Old Testament. Yes, God is righteous and just. Yes, God ultimately rewards the good and punishes the evil. Yes, the God who wounded Job will bind him back up. Job's friends owned these truths and they weren't about to let Job's misery challenge them. And so in their diligence for the truth, they betrayed the deeper truth of their mutual fellowship with their suffering friend. Everything two spouses say to each other in a disagreement might be true. But when each of them presumes they own the truth, their diligence for the truth betrays the deeper truth of their mutual fellowship which depends on seeing the truth the other side. It's easy for academics to forget this point. Academics like to weaponize the truth. We have it, and you just have to accept it. What academics say to the public about climate change, immigration, and race is no doubt correct, and it needs to be said. But if it's spoken as the truth they possess and others don't, it won't be surprising if their diligence for the truth provokes hostility to truth rather than creating mutual fellowship with their fellow citizens. There's a better way. At a conference in London last month, a scientist noted how quickly the progress of research makes our current knowledge obsolete and then asked the audience, what does it mean for me to speak the truth? when I know everything I say today will be false in 10, 20, 50, or 100 years. True academics know they don't own the truth. Truth belongs to the ongoing process of inquiry. And if they can accept that truth, they'll be well on their way to speaking the truth in love. The third hint is that speaking the truth in love might mean suffering for the truth. Diligence for the truth can mean rejection. Just ask whistleblowers who are shunned by their coworkers. Today, diligence for the truth can bring relentless harassment online and in real life. Just ask the parents of the murdered Newton school children. And the harassment can be especially severe towards women. Just ask climate change scientists like Catherine Hayhoe and Kim Cobb, who tell their stories in the August Scientific American. What can we say to those who suffer for the truth? We can tell them they don't suffer alone. In John's Gospel, Jesus tells Pilate he came into the world to testify to the truth. Pilate hands him over to be crucified. Jesus suffered rejection, humiliation, and death for his witness to the truth. And he suffers today in everyone who suffers, including those who suffer for the truth. So what about this church and its ministry to the university? Will you be the truth you speak? Will you speak it humbly, knowing you don't own it? Will you love it enough to suffer rejection or ridicule for it? Will you join diligence for the truth with care for mutual fellowship? May the one whom John's gospel proclaims as full of grace and truth equip you for your good work. Amen.
0: And now let us pray together as the people of God. Speaking God, remind us that Indeed, our words matter, and that the way we choose our word holds within it the capacity to harm, to heal, to wound, to welcome. In this time in which words are tossed about so casually, may our words be used to build up the body of Christ, to show love and compassion in a broken and battered world. Holy and merciful God, hear our words. Healing God, we pray for those who have been hurt by words of hate for refugees and immigrants, those without documents, for women and girls who have endured endured words of sexism, for people of color who hear the charges of racism, for those with disabilities who are told that they are less than, for elderly people who are told that they are of little value, for young adults, who are told that they are entitled or selfish or irresponsible. God, you are the God of the living word. So help us to speak the truth and love and to care for one another that the words that we choose to speak. Holy and merciful God, hear our prayer. Creating God, you have made the heavens and the earth, the seas and the mountains and all that dwell with them. So majestic is your name. We who are mere people... You are mindful of us, and yet we are blessed by your eternal love. Help us, God, in our busyness to be still and to know that you indeed are God. Lord, in your mercy, hear our prayers. Listening, God, you hear the cries of those in anguish in Wilmington and Myrtle Beach and Conway and Greenville, in Syria and in the Philippines, along our southern borders in Egypt or Sudan and Afghanistan, and in so many places around our county and our world, places shaken by violence and wars, flooded by hurricanes and rising river and water of destruction, bring comfort to those in anguish, those who mourn, give endurance to families who have lost their homes, their apartments, their cars, their place of work. Bring comfort to those whose trailers have washed away, to flood waters, to wind and rain. Bring, O oh God who listens, comfort and strength to those who suffer, healing to those who are afflicted. Lord, in your mercy, hear our prayers. Forgiving God, we confess that we do not know how to respond to disaster. Forgive us when we react in ignorance or overwhelmed by all that we see and hear and do and do not act. Lord, in your mercy, hear our prayers. Compassionate God, whose love never fails, teach us again how to love as you do, that we might be your hands and feet in the world, bringing water to those who thirst, food to those who hunger, clothing to those who are naked, shelter to those who are homeless and afraid, medicine for those who are ill, friendship for all who are imprisoned, Help us to see your people and your world as you see it, O God. Lord, in your mercy, hear our prayers. In all these things, we come asking that you guide us by the Prince of Peace, the one who came to bring the way, the truth, and the life among us, and to make it real. We pray the prayer that he gave us, saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our deaths as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Thanks for worshiping with us.